This is Dan Fleisch, and this is the podcast for the first four sections of Chapter 1 of A Student's Guide to Vectors and Tensors. And the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to start off the podcast by going through what I consider the big ideas of each of the four sections that are covered in this podcast with the idea that for this early material, maybe you're already solid on a lot of it and you don't want to have to listen to everything. So I'm going to go through the big ideas first, then I will go back through each section one at a time, all in this podcast for the first four sections, and talk about the ideas and give explanations. So this is going to start out seeming like a list of ideas and you might be saying wait a minute aren't you going to explain more well yes I will but first this is going to be the big ideas of each section so you might know which ones you can skip or uh, skim through quickly I will also tell you the page number and the approximate time in the podcast at, at which each section begins so you'll be able to go right to the next one uh, when you hear what the big ideas are in each one by the way, I say the page number because I think these podcasts will be most meaningful to you if you do have the book open as you go through them. But if you want to load them on your iPad and just listen to them as you ride your bike, that's fine too. Be my guest. Okay, the first section is called Definitions Basic, and there are six big ideas in that section, I believe. The first is that vectors have magnitude and direction. The second is that when you write vectors, it's really important that you indicate that it is a vector quantity by some method. You don't have to use my method. I like to put a little arrow over the top of the vector, but I really recommend that you use some notation rather than simply writing a vector as you would a scalar. The third big idea is that vectors can be free, which means you can move them around anywhere as long as you don't change their magnitude or their direction. Or they can be bound, which means they apply to a given location in space. Or they can be sliding, which means you can move them along their length, but you can't turn them or move them sideways. And there is something called vector fields, which are groups of bound vectors, each of which applies at a given location in space. The fourth big idea of the first section is that vectors in three-dimensional space are made up of three pieces, and those pieces are called components, if you have a higher dimensional space, you'll need more components to represent the vector. The fifth big idea is that scalars are not vectors. Scalars have no direction. They have magnitude only. And finally, the sixth big idea in this first section is that tensors, higher order tensors that is, involve multiple directions. So scalars involve magnitude only zero directions, vectors involve magnitude and a single direction, and higher order tensors involve multiple directions. The second section is called Cartesian unit vectors. It begins on page five of the text. And in this podcast, it begins at time 18 minutes and 23 seconds. There are, I believe, three big ideas in the second section. The first is that unit vectors have a length of one. One what? One unit of whatever units you're representing on your graph. Unit vectors are usually written with a little inverted V over the symbol in order to mark it, some people call that a caret, in order to mark it as a unit vector. The second big idea is that Cartesian unit vectors, which are usually called x hat, y hat, or z hat, where hat refers to that inverted V I mentioned, or i hat, j hat, k hat, those are the Cartesian unit vectors. 
that have a wonderful property, which is they always point in the same direction no matter where you are in that space. And as you're going to see, that's not always the case with other kinds of unit vectors. The third big idea in the second section is that an expression like 2i hat simply means take two steps in the positive x direction because i hat is no more than a little sign indicating the direction of the positive x-axis. Likewise, 3j hat means take three steps in the positive y direction and minus k hat means take one step in the negative z direction because it's minus k hat. Okay, the third section of this chapter is called Vector Components. Section 1.3 begins on page 7 of the text, and it begins at time 21 minutes and 4 seconds of this podcast. And the big ideas in section 3 are, first of all, that components tell you how far you have to go in each direction to get from the beginning of the vector to the end of the vector. The second big idea is that vectors can be written by expanding them into components, each of which is tied to a unit vector. The third big idea is that you can think of the components as projections onto the coordinate axes or shadows, if you will. If there's a light source shining on the vector, the shadow cast by that vector onto the coordinate axis is the component in that direction. The fourth big idea is that you can find the x and y components of a vector using geometry, sines and cosines. And in the text, I strongly advocate when you're working on a two-dimensional Cartesian coordinate system, that is x and y, you always measure your angles counterclockwise from the positive x-axis. You'll see why that's helpful. The fifth big idea in this section is that if you know the components, the x part and the y part and the z part if there is one, You can find the magnitude rather easily by squaring each of the components, adding them together, taking the square root. And you can find the angle that the vector makes with various axes by using the arctangent function. The fourth section in this chapter, and the final one covered in this podcast, is called Vector Addition and Multiplication by a Scalar. It begins on page 11 of the text and at time 28 minutes and 36 seconds of this podcast. And it has the following big ideas. First of all, multiplying a vector by a positive scalar, that is a number greater than zero, does not change the direction of the vector, but it does change the length or magnitude of it. Multiplying by a negative number, on the other hand, does flip the vector. That is, it inverts the direction. It rotates the vector by 180 degrees, if you will. The next big idea in this section is that vector addition, that is, adding two or more vectors together, can be done graphically by moving the tail of one vector to the head of the next vector. Doing that as many times as you need to, as many vectors as you're adding, and the resultant, that is the sum of all those vectors, is found by going from the beginning of the first vector to the end of the last one. That's how you add vectors graphically. But much more powerful is to add vectors analytically or algebraically, which you can do simply by finding the x parts of all the vectors and adding those up. That gives you the x part of the sum. Likewise, you can take the y parts of all the vectors, add all those up. That gives you the y part of the resultant vector. And if you're in a three-dimensional coordinate system, you can add up all the z parts, and that'll give you the z part of the sum. Okay, 
So those are the big ideas. Feel free to advance through in this podcast to the point at which you need help or stick with it for the whole thing, whichever you prefer. So now I'm going to go back through each section, provide a little more detail and some explanations that might help you understand those sections. Section 1.1, beginning on page one of the book, starts off with the basic definition of a vector, a mathematical representation of a physical entity that's characterized by a size, also called a magnitude, and a direction. So some examples of vectors or things that can be represented by vectors include velocity, not speed. Speed, it turns out, is a scalar, how fast you're going. But velocity is a vector because it's not only how fast you're going, it's also in what direction you're going. So you might say that the magnitude or size of the velocity vector is the speed. But there are all kinds of other things that can be represented by vectors, including acceleration, force, momentum, electric fields, magnetic fields. So there are lots of things in science and engineering that can be represented by vectors. There's a little bit in this first page about where the word vector comes from. Like many things, Latin, vehere, came from the 18th century astronomers who were in fact talking about how planets were carried around the sun, and vehere means to carry. The important part of that paragraph is the second part, which says when you write vectors, it is really helpful for you to denote vector quantities by putting either a little arrow over the top of the symbol or putting a squiggle underneath it. However you want to do it, whatever makes sense to you, unless you have a professor who insists on a certain way. But the important thing is that you denote vectors and make sure that you represent them differently from scalars. That's why I tend not to use bold in my books, because I always think if somebody's writing an equation from the book and one of the symbols is in bold, that's very hard to do when you're handwriting. So I tend to use a little arrow over the top, even though it makes it a little harder to get the line spacing correct. So the important thing is don't write vectors the same way you write non-vector quantities. Of course, you can also represent vectors graphically. There are some examples shown of this on page two. You can see figure 1.1, the A part, there's a vector. The magnitude or size of that vector is just the length of that arrow. Now you might say, well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense if it's one centimeter, but what if it's one meter or three meters per second or five newtons of force? Well, of course, the actual size of the vector doesn't have to be a literal representation. It can be a scaled representation. And as you can pick any scale you want, as long as you stick to that scale when you put all your vectors on that one graph. So the scale is up to you, but you must make sure that once you pick a certain number of inches on your graph, let's say, for representing a certain size vector, any other vectors you put on there, you've got to use that same scale. And of course, the direction is just shown relative to some coordinate system. So you might look at that and say, okay, but if a vector is characterized by its magnitude and its direction, does that mean that if I had something with the same magnitude and the same direction, but in a different location, that would be a different vector? Well, yes and no. That's really depending on what use you're putting the vectors to. As you can read about on this page and the next, there are things called bound vectors, which really do pertain only to one point in space. So for example, if you want to know the direction that a fluid is moving at some point in the stream, you can put a little vector representation there, and that applies to that place only. Likewise, if you want to know the electric field strength somewhere, you could put a vector on a graph of that region of space, and that vector would apply only to the point at which you're representing the field. 
But there are other things called free vectors, which can move around as long as you don't change the magnitude, that is the length, or the direction, you can put it anywhere in the space. And there are some kinds of problems for which free vectors are perfectly useful. You may also run into something called a sliding vector. If you're doing problems involving torque or angular momentum, there are in fact sliding vectors which can move along their length, but they cannot move sideways or change their direction. So free, bound, and sliding vectors are defined in this chapter. You'll also notice there's something called the vector field, and figure 1.1b shows you an example of that. All that is is a series of bound vectors because each one applies to that point in space. And you can see, for example, how a field is diverging from a point or how flow of air, say, in a room is different speeds at different locations. So a vector field may turn out to be a useful concept for you. Another useful thing to realize is that if you have a vector with one end at the origin, you can specify that vector simply by giving the location of its other end. And in three-dimensional space, that takes three numbers, if you will, an x number, a y number, and a z number. So that vector really is defined by those three numbers. That's why in lots of applications, you'll find vectors are simply series of numbers. There's a row vector, which are three numbers written horizontally, for example, or a column vector, which could be a group of numbers written vertically. Those represent vectors in the same way as some of the other things we've been talking about, just that you have to realize one end of the vector is at the origin and the other end is at the location described by those numbers. Now you say, yeah, but what if my vector isn't at the origin? We can always move it to the origin, again, as long as it's not a bound vector. And you do that, as shown in figure 1.2b, simply by taking the coordinates of the start and subtracting them from each end of the vector, that will automatically move your vector to the origin. Another key concept is that when I talked about specifying a vector by three numbers, I'm working in three-dimensional space. If you have only a two-dimensional system that you're working in, you only need two numbers to specify the end of that vector, like on a flat sheet of paper, for example. Or if you're working in four-dimensional space-time, now you're going to need four numbers. So when I talk about three numbers representing a vector, remember, that's only in three-dimensional space. It could take fewer or more depending on the space you're working in. By the way, those three numbers are related to what we call the components of the vector. There's going to be a lot more about components in the future section. But for now, just think of the components as the pieces that make up the vector. And in three-dimensional space, you need three pieces to make up that vector. So the number of components is equal to the number of dimensions in the space in which you're working. Next part of this chapter talks a little bit about what's not a vector. Well, one thing that's not a vector is a scalar. As shown in the box on page 4, a scalar is a mathematical representation of an entity that has no direction. It may be characterized by magnitude only. So, for example, the temperature in a room at a given location, it's not 72 Fahrenheit in some direction, it's just the magnitude of the temperature at that location. That's called a scalar. In other words, it fits on a number scale. Of course, if you look at the change in the temperature, that is, if you look at how a scalar quantity changes from one location to the other, that can be a vector because you can talk about the change in a certain direction. But the physical quantity of temperature itself is, in fact, a scalar quantity. Just like I said, speed is a scalar quantity. Okay, so if a, if a vector needs three numbers in three-dimensional space and a scalar needs one, 
are there things which need more than three numbers? I wouldn't have asked the question if the answer were no, and the answer is yes. There are entities called higher order tensors which need more than three numbers to represent them in three-dimensional space, and that's because of the reason shown in the box on the top of page five. A tensor is a mathematical representation of a physical entity that's characterized by magnitude and multiple directions, not just a single direction. So, in three-dimensional space, you can think of a scalar as a zeroth rank tensor. You can think of a vector as a first rank tensor, and higher order tensors are second rank, third rank, fourth rank, etc. That means in three-dimensional space, in order to know how many numbers it takes to represent that tensor, you take three, the number of dimensions, and raise it to r, the power of r, the rank of the tensor. So a scalar, a zeroth rank tensor, has r equals zero, three to the zero is one, it takes one number. A vector, a first rank tensor, three to the one, you need three numbers. A second rank tensor, three squared is nine, you need nine numbers to represent that. And how does that look when you write it? Well, that's what the middle of page five is meant to show. You see the scalar there on the left side looking like x or it could be y or z. Then there's a vector. And the vector is everything between the parentheses. So x1, x2, x3, those are the three components of the row vector given by x1, x2, x3 there. Or in the case of the second rank tensor, notice that it takes multiple rows and columns because in this case, in a three-dimensional space, you need nine numbers to represent it. So another way to tell what order of tensor you're dealing with is to look at the number of subscripts. In the case of a scalar, you don't need any. It's just one number. In the case of a vector, you need a subscript to count through the components for you. And in a three-dimensional space, that subscript will have to count from one to three. By the way, if we were in four-dimensional space, you'd still only need one subscript, but it would run from one to four. Likewise, when you've got a tensor of rank two, you need two subscripts. In three-dimensional space, they'll run from one to three. In higher-dimensional space, they'll run to higher numbers, but there will always be two subscripts on a second-rank tensor. Okay, the next section deals with what are called unit vectors, specifically the Cartesian unit vectors that are the type of unit vector you're most likely to run into. Section 1.2, beginning on page 5, deals with Cartesian unit vectors. It's a short little section that just points out that unit vectors are very useful whenever you're in a situation in which we're going to be dealing with more than one vector. These unit vectors are really helpful. The reason for that is, first of all, they have a length of one. One what? Whatever units you're using, the length of a unit vector is one of those units. So the idea is that these unit vectors are little signposts showing you the directions of certain things. For example, in the three-dimensional Cartesian coordinate system, the i-hat or x-hat unit vector, that is the unit vector represented by an x or an i with a little inverted v over its head, that always points in the positive x direction, that is, the direction of increasing x. Likewise, the j-hat unit vector always points in the direction of increasing y, and the k-hat always in the direction of increasing z. Now, other books use x-hat, y-hat, and z-hat. Don't be confused by that. Those are interchangeable with i-hat, j-hat, and k-hat. One important thing about these particular unit vectors is that they can be drawn anywhere in the space, and they always point the same direction. 
And of course, they always have the same magnitude because they're unit vectors. Their length must be one. But the point about direction is one that may seem trivial, but later on, you're going to run into unit vectors that don't always point in the same direction. I emphasize that the i hat, j hat, k hat unit vectors do point in the same direction in figure 1.4 on page 7, in which I made them offset a little bit from the origin. You can see i hat still points in the direction of increasing x, j hat still points in the direction of increasing y, and k hat still in the direction of increasing z. So wherever you go in the space, those unit vectors always point in the same direction if you're using these three Cartesian unit vectors you're very likely to run into an expression such as 5i hat. And what you should think when you see that is 5 units along the positive x direction. The 5 tells you the number of units to move in that direction, and the i hat tells you which direction to go. Likewise, minus 3j hat says go 3 units in the negative y direction, and k hat 1 unit in the positive z direction. As I mentioned, there are other coordinate systems which have other unit vectors, so these aren't the only ones you're going to run into. But you can do a tremendous number of problems just by understanding the i-hat, j-hat, k-hat Cartesian unit vectors. The next section, 1.3, beginning on page 7, is called Vector Components. The idea is this. Components are the pieces that make up a vector. As it said in the first section, you need as many components as there are dimensions in the space in which you're working. So in three-dimensional space, you represent a vector using three components. But what exactly do those components tell you? They tell you how to get from one end of the vector to the other. So for example, if you look on page 8 in figure 1.5a, there's vector a. Imagine you're at the origin, and you want to go to the end of the vector. Now, you could just walk along the vector, but using components, that's not how you're going to do it. The component tells you how far to go in each direction. So in the case of a three-dimensional XYZ coordinate system, vector A is supposed to lie in the YZ plane, so it has no X part. So if you want to get from the beginning of the vector to the end, the components tell you how far to go in the Y direction, that's the Y component, and then you turn left and you go up in the positive z direction, and you come to the end of vector a. So the y component tells you how far to go in the y direction, the z component tells you how far to go in the z direction, and in this case, you might say, well, there is no x component. I think a better way to say that is the x component is zero. If you're at the origin and you want to go to the end of this vector, you take zero steps in the x direction. You can see this written out in a very handy and ubiquitous way in the middle of page 8, Equation 1.1 shows the vector A, written first as a vector, and that vector represents a physical entity in any coordinate system you want if you just look at the left half of the equation, vector A. But if you look at the right half, we've now said in this coordinate system, in the XYZ Cartesian three-dimensional coordinate system, the vector can be thought of as being comprised of three components. The first component tells you how far to go in the x direction, that's a sub x, and the i hat tells you in the positive x direction, plus a sub y. Now don't be fooled by that plus. You are never going to simply add the ax number to the ay number because they're in different directions. But what this says is the vector a is made up of a certain number of steps in the x direction, and a certain number of steps in the y direction, and a third number of steps in the z direction. That's how you get from the beginning to the end. So equation 1.1 is called the expanded 
way of writing this. We say we have expanded A into its components in this particular coordinate system. But if you had picked a different coordinate system, the components would have been different. But they still would have gotten you from the beginning of A to the end of A. So this notation is very important for you to understand that when you look at an equation like 1, 1, you realize that the vector on the left side and the representation of components and unit vectors on the right side are representing the same quantity. Now one way that I like to think about the components is as projections onto the coordinate axes. There's a lot more about this in later chapters, but to give you an idea of it, look on page 9 and figure 1.6. We've sketched a lamp here shining down on the vector A in the left half of the figure. And vector A is casting a shadow onto the x-axis. Likewise, the light in the B part of the figure is shining horizontally back towards the origin. And the vector A would cast a shadow on the y-axis. That's what I think of when I think of projecting a vector onto an axis. Now, as it turns out, if those two axes weren't perpendicular you would have to be very careful how you did this projection because it's pretty clear in this case you can shine the light parallel to the y-axis which automatically makes it perpendicular to the x-axis. Likewise, you could shine it parallel or really anti-parallel since it's going toward the origin to the x-axis and that's perpendicular to the y-axis. But as you'll see later if you choose to go into the later parts of the book, if you have two axes that are not perpendicular to each other it makes a very important difference how you choose to do those projections. We don't have to face up to any of that now, and you can just think of light shining either parallel to the y-axis or perpendicular to the x, or vice versa, and there will be no confusion. So that's one way to think of getting the components of the vectors. But of course, to do precise work, you're going to want to use an analytical approach to it, and that's what's talked about on page 10. There, you'll see a way to get the x component and the y component of vector A simply by taking the magnitude or the length. By the way, magnitude is represented by putting the two vertical bars, one on either side of the symbol for the vector, which looks like absolute value. In fact, what we mean here is the length of the vector. And if you multiply that length by the cosine of theta, you get the x part. Now for that to work, the theta has to be measured from the positive x-axis in the direction moving toward the y-axis. That is, for the way most people draw xy, in the counterclockwise direction. If you measure theta that way, this equation will always work. No matter what value theta has, this will always work. Likewise, if you want the y component, you can take the magnitude of a times the sine of theta. You might say, wait a minute, if my vector points off to the left, how is it going to come out to have a negative component using cosine and sine? Well, that's the beauty of sine and cosine. The negative is built in as long as you measure theta as I've described here. Of course, you don't have to do it that way. If you want to always measure from the axis that's closest to the vector and then add 90 or 180 and do your geometry yourself, you are more than welcome to. I just find when people are first introduced to vectors, it's often very helpful to know that if you measure theta from the positive x-axis counterclockwise, you can always use these two equations as long as you've got xy Cartesian coordinates. You can always use these two equations to find the x and y components of the vector. There's an example here in which I pick a vector and I pick an angle and I calculate x and y components. Those are in equation 1.3 and you can work that through yourself. 
to see how that works. The good news about components is once you know the components, it's easy to find the length of the vector and the angle of the vector using the equations shown on page 10 also. Notice equation 1.4 says the magnitude or length of A is just the square root of the x part squared plus the y part squared, and that's just the Pythagorean theorem. Happily, if you had a z part, you could just square that and add it in, and that would work as well. If you want to know the angle from the positive x-axis, that is theta, you can take the arctan of the y part of A divided by the x part of A, and that will give you the direction. Now be a little careful. On many calculators, if the denominator is negative, you must add 180 degrees to the answer in order to get the angle from the positive x-axis. So make sure you understand how your calculator works and what to do if you're trying to figure out the angle using equation 1.5. The last section in this podcast is called Vector Addition and Multiplication by a Scalar. It's section 1.4, beginning on page 11 of the text. In a sense, you already know about vector addition and multiplication by a scalar, because when we did the components and unit vectors and expanded vector A into A sub X i hat and A y j hat and A z k hat, if you think about it, we're using those scalars, A sub X, A sub y, and A sub z, to multiply those unit vectors, i hat, j hat, and k hat, and then we're adding up the results as vectors. So. What does it mean to multiply a vector by a scalar, like a sub x? All it means is that the magnitude or length of the vector changes, but not its direction. Well, as long as the factor that you're multiplying by is positive. So, for example, look at figure 1.7. There you see vector a and vector 5a. It's just 5 times as long as a. I offset it a little bit so you could see both a and 5a, but you don't have to do that. Depending on whether the vector is free or bound, you may or may not be able to do that. Likewise, 1 half a is a vector same direction as a, but half as long. Now, as you've heard me say, if you do multiply by a negative scalar, it does reverse the direction of the vector. So in the B part of figure 1.7 on the bottom of page 11, you'll see vector B, and you'll see minus 2B, which is twice as long as B because of the 2, and the minus means that this vector is pointing in the opposite direction from the original vector B. So generally, multiplication by a scalar does not change the direction of a vector unless that scalar is negative, and then it reverses the direction of the vector. Vector addition is quite straightforward. There's a couple different ways to do it. The graphical way of adding vectors is simply to move the tail of one vector to the head of the other vector. Remember, when you're moving the vector, you cannot change its direction. And this is shown at the bottom of page 12. There, in figure 1.8, you see vectors a and b. Notice in the left half of the figure, that's where the vectors are. And then in the b part of the figure, we've moved vector b. It's now dashed. It's been displaced so as to help us add it to vector a. When we moved B, we did not change its length or its direction. We just slid it along vector A so that one end of vector B is at the other end of vector A. Now, in order to add A and B, you simply go from the beginning of the first vector, that is the beginning of vector A, to the end of the second vector, that is the end of vector B. So the new vector, which we could have called C equals A plus B, goes from the origin, the beginning of A, up to the end of the displaced B. As you can see, you could have slid A up the axis and that would have given you the same answer. So, 
to add vectors graphically, and this doesn't just work with two vectors, it works with any number, each time you want to add a vector, you can displace the vector by sliding it along one of the other vectors to where its foot is at the head of the other vector, and then to make the summation go from the beginning of the first one to the end of the last one. Of course, that's graphical, and if you have a ruler and a protractor, you can do that, but it might take some time, and it might not be very accurate. And a much easier way to add vectors is by using the algebraic approach. That approach is shown on page 13. You can understand it by looking at figure 1.9, where two vectors, an A vector that has a pretty big positive X component and a little positive Y component, and vector B, which has a negative X component and a positive Y component. Notice that those two vectors are being added. Using the head-to-tail approach and the graphical approach, you can see where vector C is going to go. But here's another thing. Notice that vector C, if you want to look at its Y part, look at the A part of the figure. Vector A has a Y part that's shown there as A sub Y J hat, and vector B has a component that is B sub Y J hat, and C, the combination or the addition of A and B, its Y part is just AY plus BY. In other words, we're adding the Y components of the two vectors that are being added together to get the Y component of the sum. The B part of the figure shows how this works in the X case. There's A sub X, I hat. Now B sub X, I hat is negative because B sub X is a negative component. But notice what C is. C is the combination, the sum, of A and B sub X, remembering that B sub X is going to be negative. The result's going to be a little smaller than the A component. So this is written a little more clearly in equation 1.6, where you see CX, the X part of the sum, is simply the X part of A added to the X part of B. Likewise, the y part of C, C sub y, is the y part of A added to the y part of B. And of course, if you say, okay, that gives me the x and y part of C, but how long is C? Well, you can use what we talked about previously to get the length. That's equation 1.7. Just square the x part, square the y part of C now. Add them together, take the square root, that's the magnitude of C. Likewise, if you want to know the angle that C makes with the positive x-axis, take the arctan of CY divided by CX. Don't forget to add 180 degrees if CX is negative. So this way is the algebraic method of adding vectors as compared to the graphical method. They both work. Your professors might want you to know how to do both of them, so make sure that you have at least a conceptual understanding of how they both work. So you should work through the example here, and there's some problems at the end of the chapter that will help. Make sure you understand these concepts. The next podcast is going to cover the remaining two sections of this chapter, which deal with non-Cartesian unit vectors and things called basis vectors.